Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This is the second episode in a multi-part series on digital humanities and social sciences in African studies. In the series, Peter Lim and I interview faculty active in the field of digital scholarship and learn about their practical experiences working with IT in their Africa courses, research, and public engagement. Our guest today is Laura C., assistant professor in the Department of Government at Colby College in Maine. Her research and teaching interests include qualitative and mixed methods, African politics and development, and post-conflict state reconstruction. At Colby, Laura C. teaches African politics, conflict, and research methods. She has also been blogging about African politics, development, and security for many years at Texas in Africa. She is a contributor to the Duck of Minerva, the Christian Science Monitor's Africa Monitor blog, theatlantic.com, and also recently joined the team at the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog. She is a very active social media presence with over 18,000 followers on Twitter, and her handle on Twitter is at Texas in Africa. Welcome. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're recording this at the African Studies Association meeting in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, thanks so much for taking time out of this very, very busy uh, time to speak with us. And one of the nice things we do, I think, on this podcast is to give a little bit of background about our guests. And one thing that strikes me about what you do is you were born in, and grew up in Texas and you become an expert on the Eastern Congo. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that that journey? Yeah, it's it's a bizarre one, and I think my mother sort of wonders what she did wrong. My sister also works in Africa, and uh, it, it's not, it's not normal for for two daughters from a small town in West Texas to to end up doing what we do. Um, I think, you know, honestly, going way back where, where it started was I was raised um, in an evangelical Christian household. Um, my father was one of the ministers at our church, and so we were there every time the doors were open. And one of the, um, the big emphases in evangelical Christianity is on missions and studying missionaries around the world. And so every week from the time I was, I was three years old until I graduated from high school, um, I, was, I had to go to meetings and I had to learn about um, missionaries. And of course, a large percentage of them were in Africa. And part of the way they would try to get us interested and get us thinking about what those missionaries are doing was to talk about the countries that they worked in and the cultures. And so I, you know, I, some of my earliest memories are like learning about missionaries in Nigeria and, and thinking Nigeria sounds like a really interesting place. Or I had a pen pal um, who was the child of missionaries who was in what was then uh, Southwest Africa. And, and became Namibia while we were while we were riding back and forth at about at about 12 years old, which to me was like, well, why would a country change names? You know, that's that's a that's a story I've, I'm interested in. And I think that um, when I sort of you know grew up and and took ownership of my own identity and those kinds of things that we all do as we as we leave our families home, those interests have always you know I think they've always been there, and and that 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 really is what built it up. Um, but the, the thing that got me really kind of on the African politics track, uh, when I was a first year in university, I had to write a paper about uh, the refugee crisis in Africa's Great Lakes region. 
and this was the spring of 1997, which was a particularly challenging time to write a paper about the refugee crisis in Africa's Great Lakes region because this is when uh, the Congolese rebels, the AFDL, who were backed by Rwanda and Uganda and probably several other regional governments, uh, were marching across the country and taking control of territory, every large swaths of territory every day. And I could not write the paper because there were so many tens of hundreds of thousands of refugees. They were moving, you know, 20 miles, 30 miles a day, 100 miles a week. And it was it was just impossible. There was no stopping point where I could say, you know, this is what the situation is and and here are the implications. And I just became absolutely fascinated by what would cause this kind of situation and why isn't anybody doing anything about it? Why doesn't, you know, why doesn't Mobutu stop these rebels? Why is the government so weak? And I, yeah, from there, it was just sort of just happened. And I, um, I kept, you know, when I had an option about what to write a paper about for a class, I would always do it on an Africa topic. Um, I got the opportunity to study abroad in Kenya as in my junior year. And so signed up for that took a year to convince my parents that that was a good idea but um they were comforted because um i went to a religious university and so there was a missionary who was helping our team out and so they figured the missionary you know if anything bad happened in kenya the missionary would take care of us was the was the thinking um it was really pretty amazing the, the confluence of those those things at the time but that just kind of sealed the deal for me i i loved it we were in kenya i was living with a family in a rural village for a while and then living with a family in nairobi and learning swahili and you know taking classes and um kenya at the time was still a dictatorship it was a place where people didn't feel free to speak out um, and you and speaking out could get you tortured um, we met with the doctor who uh, interviewed amnesty international um, clients who, you know, people who were who said they'd been tortured, and, and it was her job to examine them and see if the injuries that they showed were consistent with the torture claims that they made. And of course, they always were, um, because the Moy regime was was very much in the habit of, of torturing dissidents. And I just this this like these questions about human rights and um, how you how you organize a society and how you keep it from being too controlling but but have enough power and control that you don't have the chaos that was going on in Congo, it just kind of sucked me in. And, and here I am. And we'll come back to your um, book that you're finishing on this topic, Substituting for the State, about the role of non-state actors uh, in, in, in the Eastern Congo. But What's fascinating is, you know, you're, you finished your PhD just a, a few years ago. You're a young up-and-coming scholar, uh, but your work has, has also appeared on your blog, Texas in Africa, for some time. That's actually when I first uh, heard of you and <laughs> yeah. I first started engaging with your ideas. Uh, you blogged about African politics and development and uh, security and so on. Can you share with us? With the listeners, the genealogy uh, of this blog, uh, uh, Texas in Africa, and also maybe start thinking about um, for us about how it influenced your work and life as a scholar of Africa based in the United States. Yeah, so I actually started it when I did my dissertation field work. Um, so in 2005, um, I started going to Congo for for the project, and um, it was basically a like mom, I'm still alive kind of mechanism, you know, to, a place to post reflections from the field and pictures. It was, it was for my friends and family. I mean, I sent out the address with my Christmas cards and it was like, you know, if you guys would like to know what I'm going to be doing while I'm in Congo this year, you can, you can follow along here. And I kept it anonymous, I, you know, for, for personal safety reasons. Um, although I think, you know, looking back, 
there were so few Americans. I was in Goma um, for most of that time. There were so few Americans in Goma at the time that it was fairly obvious he was writing the blog to anybody who, who really cared. But um, I, I, my, um, my dissertation advisor did not look fondly on activities not relating to one's dissertation. So I, I kind of kept it quiet and didn't put my name on it. And um, what I found was that there was this audience um, of people who were really interested in what was going on in Congo and, and in broader questions like about African politics and questions kind of at the intersection of security and development, you know, what, what happens to people in a conflict zone. Um, I was researching um, social service provision in, in the Kivu provinces at the time, but I was also, you know, visiting refugee camps and meeting people whose experiences were, were just just horrific experiences of violence. And so I kind of was using the blog also to, to for my mental health, just to process some of the things I was encountering and and to tell people, you know, this is going on. This is this is reality. And it's um, it's really not good what's going on here. And I, I think that this is just around the time. So I was doing my dissertation work between 05 and 07. So at the kind of the end of, of Congo's official political transition period out of the war um, and into the, the Third Republic under the new constitution. And yeah, there was just this audience and, and a lot of hunger for it. And, and things were happening. You know, the constitution would come out in 2007. Um, a former rebel who had been become a vice president and then run against Kabila for the presidency and lost to Jean-Pierre Bemba, um, his private army that he, he kept around and, and Kabila's presidential guard sort of fighting in the streets of Kinshasa in March of 07. Um, and there was a huge desire for knowledge for that. And so I was trying to you know compile reports from what other people were saying on their blogs and what I was hearing from friends in Kinshasa. Um, and, and just, you know, try as it, it was really a mechanism for spreading information. And I think as I moved from um, being in the field and just sort of reporting on what I was seeing every day um, back to, you know, being in, in Austin and writing the dissertation, um, definitely it, the blog turned more toward an analysis. Um, so trying to focus, so trying to explain to people what was going on. And again, I found that there was just this big audience. Um, so I kept it anonymous until I was out of graduate school, and then I put my name on it. Um, and yeah, it's I, I, it's not as um, active now because I'm um, writing for the Washington Post now, and I've also been working on this book manuscript. And so that the time is limited that I can just kind of do. But it's nice to have because if there's something that's you know I just want to write about an opinion or or think about an issue that I haven't thought about before, it's it's really useful. And I think it's even more useful in terms of research. I mean, I will turn to social media when I've got a problem in my research, when there's something I can't figure out, or does anybody know if there's a literature on XYZ? Um, and people are quite responsive. Speaking of social media, yeah. since the, uh, this interview is also part of a uh, multi-interview series on digital African studies, as of this morning, I checked and you had 18,228 <laughs> followers on Twitter. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> now, how do you explain this remarkable <laughs> following is my first question. And my second one is, you know, can you speak to the possibilities of social media for Africa scholars, for journalists, for practitioners, as well as maybe give us a, a taste of its limitations, uh, for example, as an incredibly addictive, powerful distraction? That's a great question. I, so the, the answer to your first question is I have no idea who these people are or why they're following me, but it's, I mean, I, it's, it's, 
it's a wide range of people. It's other academics. It's um, a lot of aid workers, a lot of like people who work for the UN or the World Bank. So practitioners, policymakers. There are a lot of people who seem to just kind of want to follow world news and they they've picked a feed about the middle east and they've picked another feed about africa and the one about africa is mine um and some congolese there either in and the, some congolese from or from the both itself both from the diaspora mm-hmm. and from drc itself although because i mostly don't tweet in french the the audience in congo is is fairly limited um but i do mm-hmm. yeah the the kind of somewhat alarming thing is that a lot of the embassies the drc embassies abroad follow me which i hope doesn't interfere with my ability to get a visa in the future, um, you know. But I think that they're interested. It's their job to track what people are saying, and, and it's a good sign that they're that they're actually doing that. That's a, that's a sign of state capacity um, that we're always looking and, for. And scholars of Congo could well be trawling your tweets uh, before too long, and that was one of the themes we had yesterday in the workshop on doing African studies in the digital world was the, the fact that this is a new source, if you like. Uh, uh, so uh, I suppose you'd have to be doubly careful of what you tweet in that regard. I, yeah, <laughs> I think you do. I mean, and I have rules. You know, I don't tweet about, like, private conversations. I don't, you know, if somebody – I don't tweet about sensitive information. And so people. So the interesting thing about having this large following is that sometimes people ask you, could you put this sensitive information out there because I can't – you know, they're leaking to you or they're passing something on that they want to be public knowledge. So, for example, um, the the – UN every year releases a um, the, what's called the Group of Experts report on DRC. Mm-hmm. So this is the people who are, you know, they're mostly scholars employed by the UN to track who's smuggling minerals and who's behaving badly in Eastern Congo. And um, they're usually pretty contentious. And the reason that they're contentious is that Rwanda is, the government of Rwanda is very often implicated in some of this illegal, illicit activity. And so they do everything they can at the UN to try to scuttle the reports, to try to discredit the um, the people on the group. And, you know, sometimes you, you are passed along information, not necessarily directly from the group, but it'll come through a more circuitous route saying, you know, the group report was supposed to be released on January 1st, but it wasn't. And it's because the Rwandans are holding it up. Mm-hmm. Could you help us? We're trying to get attention on this fact, you know, that the report is late and that it's because somebody's trying to to get a, a unflattering section removed or something like that. And I think that that raises a lot of ethical questions for a scholar because, of course, it's not my job to do your PR for you, you know. But at the same time, I, I mean, my commitment is generally to knowledge, I think, should be as open and free as possible, especially knowledge that, that you know, is not going to cause physical harm. I mean, I, I wouldn't tweet about something that I, I think would put somebody at risk or something that's classified. But something like this, where an authoritarian government is trying to block the release of accurate information, to me seems seems like a, a fairly important thing. The cost of this to me is that uh, the Rwandans really hate me, <laughs> and and I do have, I have thousands of Rwandan trolls, and I, I've blocked probably 500 or so accounts um, that claim to originate in Rwanda of people just you know kind of. For, trying to discredit everything I say. For the listeners who don't know, who may not be familiar with Twitter, uh, we use the term troll and we're talking about blocking. Uh, this is something that has come up actually uh, a lot in my recent conversations. People who fear social media because of backlash from people who are out there who are, for ideological reasons, for other reasons, you know, are, are, are trying to silence uh, or humiliate or at simply attack yeah. people who have views other than their own. Um, 
So can you can you just explain the concept of troll very briefly? Because I mean, the president of Rwanda has been accused of doing this. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. I, I have never heard of anything like this before happening. And also, how one blocks or can respond to these kinds of uh, activities on social media. Sure. So trolling is just um, it's not it's non-constructive debate is how I would. Um, I would categorize it. You know, people are always going to disagree, especially when you're talking about political issues. Um, that's fine. And I think that Twitter is a great medium for exploring arguments, for going back and forth with people, for going back and forth with people that you wouldn't normally get to engage with. You know, I wouldn't normally get to talk to a Congolese university student in Mbandaka or something like that. And, you know, it's 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 not on my beat. But but I get to do that because of Twitter. But when, when someone is trolling, they're not interested in in debate, in exchange, they're interested in silencing and shutting you down. And so um, this can take the form of harassment. It can take the form of, you know, just saying, just just trying to contradict everything you say of calling you names, calling you a liar or, or things that I won't say here. But um, I think it's, 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 it's particularly bad and can even be worse for women, frankly, out there. I mean, we know that there's a lot of... Um, so the, the Gamergate um, scandal where women are being threatened with rape and, and murder. And certainly I experience a lot of, of harassment and trolling that is that I would call sexist. Um, and, and in some cases that is outright, you know, illegal. I mean, it would be illegal if someone said those things to you in, in person and it, and it ought to be illegal. But, you know, transnational communication isn't isn't that well regulated. And so it, it can get kind of scary sometimes. And so your response to, to somebody who's doing this mm -hmm. to on, on Twitter is to block well. them. So so Twitter has a function that allows you to yeah. basically prevent that account from seeing your tweets again or communicating with you. Um, now, it doesn't stop somebody who's really committed to harassing you from opening another account or opening multiple accounts. And I think that, you know, you mentioned the episode of President Kagame. I think what we saw there was some some evidence. Um, so so what happened was uh, Kagame was there was a there was a a series of tweets going on. I was I was kind of CC'd on it, but I was actually teaching. I wasn't part of the argument that they were having. Um, but there was this this account, Richard Goldston, um, who had a long history of you know really misogynistic tweets against women who criticized Rwanda and would go just after anybody. And I mean by anybody, I mean like Martin Kobler, who's the special representative of the Secretary General in the United Nations, really important high level people, um, and just calling them nasty names, trying to discredit them. And one of the replies to whoever was engaging with this Goldston account came from Kagame's, you know, official verified presidential account at the at the Rwandan president's office. And clearly it was a case of someone running multiple accounts who also had access to the president's account and and then replied. And I think that, you know, th that raises some pretty disturbing implications about what's going on in the head of state's office in, in Rwanda. But also it shows that, you know, it's pretty hard to stop the harassment and you, you have to have pretty thick skin if you're going to engage this way. It also raises the question of uh, situating uh, social media back in Africa. And of course, social media are global in, uh, in nature. And, but ubiquitous also is the cell phone. So I uh, wonder what your thoughts are on, on tweeting in Africa, in, say, Eastern DRC. It's a slightly different situation. Um, it's, a lot of it is uh, driven through the cell phone. So I'm just wondering what you see as the future in terms of social media in the African context, not just in the African studies context. 
Yeah, I think it's it's amazing, and, it, and there's some amazing potential there. Um, Twitter use in a place like Eastern Congo is still relatively low because bandwidth is expensive and airtime is expensive and data plans are, are still you know out of reach for most people who are live on extraordinarily low levels of income every day. Um, but maybe but, Kinshasa would be very different. Yeah, or I think, or, you know, Kigali and Kampala, mm -hmm. I mean, there people are, are deeply engaged with social media. I mean, I one of my favorite things to do on Twitter is watch the, watch the young Ugandan professional class challenging their leaders who are also on Twitter. I mean, that's what's fascinating. There are a lot of government ministers now and members of parliament and, you know, the, the, head, of the, the, the head of the military is on Twitter, um, Lieutenant General Wamala, and, you know, to, to exchange with them and say, well, you say there's no corruption, but I was just asked to pay a bribe by employee X in this office. And, and you know, sort of trying to build that public accountability. I mean, I think the potential is, is really incredible. And it's giving people a platform for the voices that they already had. I mean, one of my least favorite terms that people throw around is voice for the voiceless. Um, I, I hate it when people claim I'm, I'm a voice for the voiceless in Africa. No, you're not. Um, you're 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 not listening to the to the people you're claiming to speak for, and and you're co-opting them, and you're you're taking their 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 space away. But what people don't have necessarily or haven't had in the past is a platform, a way to get their ideas out there, a way to challenge authority, um, a way to organize. And and I think that social media is providing that in a very very powerful way. Um, so if you're Ugandan, you can start a podcast, or you can start a YouTube series, and you have, you know, if you live in the city, at least you have the bandwidth to, to broadcast it. And um, I have my students um, engage with people in Africa on Twitter, um, host tweet chats, things like that. To, you know, I mean, it's one thing to read the theory in a book, but it's quite another when when a student says something that maybe is you know, well-intentioned, but a little naive, a little misinformed, and to, to, to not, not have... About no, of course not. Opinion. But to have me, you know, to have me say, well, that I don't think most Africans would agree with you is quite different from 20 Africans jumping on you and saying, you know, that's really prejudiced or that's really not, not how we live and, and you have an outdated view and, and here's what you need to know. Um, it's, it's a really powerful teaching tool and it, you know, it's cheap and easy for, for both of us on both ends. So I think in, in a place like Congo, you know, we're, we're facing possibly a period of political transition. Um, so the, the president's term is set to expire in 2016. He seems to be set on changing the constitution to run for another term. And, and there's huge levels of resistance to this. Um, people are done and they, they want their constitution to be respected. They don't want, you know, to just have sort of a free-for-all with with the president at the helm and so the question is there's no question they're going to oppose it there's no question he's going to try to do it what happens next and and i think that social media is going to play a really important role in how people organize how they conduct protests how they take to the streets how they get out there and we're already seeing signs of that i mean there have been multiple protests this year and very concerted and clear efforts hashtags created for the protest you know, hundreds of pictures flooding Twitter from various cities across the country. So it's one of those things that I think is, is still really taking off in Eastern Congo, but the, the potential is huge. It sort of also raises to me the question of the <clears throat> contemporary and, and especially the future sources for, for political scientists and others who are uh, examining and analyzing uh, political events such as these that you're talking about. And I mean that Michigan State, we have Afrobarometer, which has been crunching enormous <coughs> amounts of data on African public opinion. And now we see another sort of whole tower of data emerging uh, through social media. 
But coming back to your scholarship and what you've been working up into a book manuscript, and uh, I understand that a lot of that looks at, at the dimension of the, the weakness of the state in Eastern Congo. So I, I wonder if we could turn that round as a question and so, sort of say, well, uh, is the obverse of that uh, the strength of, of, say, the Rwandan and Ugandan states? That's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, maybe, maybe. Certainly, it, it plays a role. I mean, the you know that the Rwandans and Ugandans were able to to invade uh, twice, but also to back these proxy forces. I mean, if you if you lay it out in those terms, Rwanda has backed four different proxy forces over the course of the last twenty years, um, and most analysts think it's just a matter of time before they they find a fifth. Um, or, or reconstitute one of the ones that, that supposedly no longer exists. I think from, from my perspective, you know, I'm interested in what the Congolese do about the fact that their government doesn't provide them with, with basic services, basic security, you know, regulation of, of health care, um, education in any kind of meaningful sense of, of what it means to provide education. And so for me, I th- you know, the, the question that I'm asking in the book is, both trying to just describe what this landscape of governance by not government, right, by, by this wide landscape of actors, what that looks like, but also why efforts to, to build the state's capacity tend to fail. And, and the argument that I'm making is that the, the, the efforts that work are the ones that incorporate these informal actors. So they don't see them as competitors to the state. They're not excluded, but they're brought in and and made part of the effort. And so the emphasis is not so much on building the, the state institution as it is on building capacity within the society. So I look at things like healthcare, education, infrastructure, security, and, and what you see is that, you know, in something like healthcare, when informal actors are fully brought in and the informal institutions like patronage networks, the big men, you know, all these things that we know across Africa that, that in Congo are, are far stronger than any state institution, than any kind of formal institution, um, those efforts make a huge difference. So, um, and when you ignore it, like in the security sector, and just assume that any actor engaged in a security function is, is bad, is a threat to, to public order, it's, it's a total failure. Or in the economic sphere or the political economy sure. sphere with the artisanal miners and the coltan trade. And I mean, two of our earlier podcasts with um, David Newbury on, on Northern DRC and with Tom Turner on coltan and other aspects sort of explored both the, the past and the present of Eastern Congo, and one of the sub-themes there was the sort of intersection between politics and the economy, and I suppose uh, that sort of feeds into the point you made earlier, that there's not an awful lot of good cell phone connections in Eastern Congo, and that sort of comes back to the, uh, perhaps the instability of the economy and how that feeds into these warlords and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's always been a, a complex, interplay and it of course there is this like bitter irony that you know outside of an urban area cell phone coverage is very spotty even though this is where the materials that are that are in the cell phone come from (laughs) this is astonishing just sort of contrast there um and i'm like you know staring at my smartphone looking for bars when i'm out in a in a mining village and and can't get them um i think that, that you know yeah and so so what you're dealing with i have another project on the conflict minerals question and you're dealing with a wartime economy and and a wartime economy and an economy in a fragile state like Congo is is a survival economy 
and people do what they have to do to survive. And so I think that, you know, one of the points I would make is that the, the efforts to, to shut down the conflict mineral trade, I think, are, are well-intentioned and, you know, it, it seems like a good idea, but they've had these unintended consequences of putting people out of work. And meanwhile, the, because there are no institutions, because corrupt or the, the institutions are so weak, corruption is, is so rampant, it basically has made no difference. The, the, the warlords have lost access to the, the mineral revenue over the course of the last two to three years. And, and they can't sell those minerals anymore. I mean, they're sitting piled up in warehouses in Bukavu and Goma, mm. but they're not laying down their arms. Um, and in fact, we have good reason to believe that, you know, some of them have actually become more violent. Um, and what they've done is diversify their revenue streams because I think that one of the things that the activists working on this didn't realize is that, you know, there's this kind of, incredible entrepreneurial spirit in Congo and it, and it comes out of survival. It's, it's been that way for a long time. Mobutu is quite famous for having said, you know, help yourself. In other words, you've got to provide, the state's not going to do it for you. And so the, it, it's not a surprise that the rebel groups, you know, okay, we can't trade coltan, we'll, we'll get into charcoal, we'll get into timber, we'll get into poaching animals in Virunga National Park and selling them to Middle Eastern princes who want a pet baby gorilla. Um, they control border crossings, you know, they, they control um, checkpoints and, and those kinds of things on the road, and, and they continue to bring in the revenue, continue to be violent. And another really unfortunate effect of, of these efforts um, is that they put a lot of artisanal miners who, who were not engaged in conflict trading out of work. And we have reason to believe, so I'm, I'm hoping to look into this next year and, and during um, some more surveys that I'm going to be running, we think that quite a lot of them joined armed groups because they didn't have any other economic livelihood yeah. opportunity. So it, it, it may, it, it not only didn't help, it may have ultimately had the, the sort of inverse effect to what was originally intended by policymakers. Well, thank you very much for taking us from West Texas uh, to <laughs> Eastern Congo uh, via social media, but also showing how you know being active in the digital realm is not a hindrance to doing what scholars uh, do best, which is write articles, write books, um, and uh, spread this very, very important knowledge uh, that we are we are so sorely lacking in the West, and doing it very much with with an empathetic view. Uh, from from as much as possible from a Congolese uh, viewpoint as well. So thank you very much for speaking with us uh, in Africa Past and Present. Well, thanks for having me. It was great fun. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Oh,